right, welcome on in, everybody. Trey Fitzgerald, Ryan Hale, the super producer. Another episode of Bleeding Claret and Cobalt. Great show coming your way today. Former RSL employee, current MLS national writer for The Athletic, Sam Stayskull, joins us. We talk a little bit of RSL perception from outside Utah. We talk a lot about the current, I guess, sales environment uh, as Orlando and Houston also uh, on the block. There's a there's a little bit of uh, CBA negotiations between MLS and the Players Union. And then we get into kind of state of journalism uh, for Sam. But it's uh, you can tell he's a guy that uh, still has a lot of fondness uh, for our club, for this club, as we all do. And uh, hopefully it, it makes for some interesting uh, thought around some big-picture issues. Now, also coming out uh, really in the middle of our of our chat with Sam, uh, Ryan, the news came out that uh, MLS has kind of sent out some key dates for the 2021 season, uh, still subject to MLS Players Union approval. But uh, there's a there's a current kind of working deadline of the 28th of January, whether that gets extended or not. Um, media is speculating on Twitter that if there is if both sides feel like there is progress, that would be extended. But basically, the key dates are February 22nd preseason begins, which means I think players would probably report 10 to 14 days earlier to handle whatever quarantine issues need to be handled from wherever they're coming from, and I think some of that is still to be determined. But then Saturday, April 3rd, would be opening weekend for the 2021 Major League Soccer season. Playoffs in November, MLS Cup in December. So that's some uh, good news that is new info from when we just spoke with Sam. A couple other news and notes items. Uh, The big news over the weekend is that uh, RSL right back Aaron Herrera is on the game day roster for next Sunday, February. What day of the week is that? That's actually the 31st, Sunday, January 31st. Um, friendly against Trinidad. So uh, Aaron's got uh, just right around a week to kind of get into Greg Burhalter's perhaps starting 11 or at least game day 18. But it's good that uh, it's good that Aaron has made that kind of impression that he was part of that announcement for Burhalter and the and the US men's national team setup since David Ochoa, as you hopefully saw, uh, was initially invited to camp, uh, suffered a little bit of an injury, so he is he was replaced uh, just a couple days into camp. I think that's one of those um as an RSL fan, I wanna know that people understand that we've got this guy Aaron Herrera that plays for us. And yeah. that he's he's ready to make that that move into the international scene. So um, yeah, I want to see how. I hope he gets uh, gets all the looks he needs. I want to see him out in the field with the USA crest on. But that's a uh, you know kind of bummed out about Ochoa, but I know he'll get another yeah. chance. So um, yeah, just just seeing our guys you know make those steps out into the into the big time is pretty special. Other Herrera news, I guess, over the weekend. Not really news, but it, there was a rumor from uh, you know I think a Italian writer on Twitter that a club over there Benevent. Benevuto, I'm I'm butchering this. I think my Italian's not as good as it as it. Actually, it's never been good. Um, 
But the the tenth place club in Serie A, uh, Benev- Benevento, Benevento. Um, there may or may not be an N in there. Anyway, that they're reportedly you know interested in Herrera. I don't don't know that they've that that interest is serious. So uh, that got uh, the RSL Twitter uh, going a little bit uh, last weekend. So Aaron, uh, not a surprising development that a a young guy that that's played as many MLS minutes and is in a national team camp is part of transfer rumors during an open uh during an open window from from overseas but that's uh I think that kind of thing always bodes well for uh, when you're looking at uh, RSL Academy products that you have that kind of interest obviously better be a pretty penny for uh for a guy like Herrera to move on from RSL cuz he's a guy that as we've talked about with Tony and others in the past you kind of imagine these guys like Justin Glad Jordan Allen uh, some of the others, you, you imagine them wearing the Claret and Cobalt shield for 10 or 15 years and hopefully staying here for their entire career. How often does that kind of thing happen where um, where there's like a re- there's real interest behind it? Where you, I mean, because we'll, every once in a while, like from the fans' point of view, we'll see one of those like rumors pop up that like, sure. oh, this team over here says this and this team. Um, how often is that? really like sincere about like ourselves it's hard to say because you know as the world has changed and evolved and social media lines have blurred with journalism lines and fan pundit blogging etc has kind of blurred the line with and and look every country in the world has different standards of journalism and but they've all eroded so you know when i see something like that a lot of times i think okay that's cool could be great for Aaron financially could be great for RSL financially but this could be some guy who has a blog uh trying to do an agent a favor or a or a middleman or an intermediary to put pressure on a deal that may or may not exist between somebody else that's shopping Aaron in England or Spain or whatever, you know, again, like I, I think the core of it is you've got a young guy in a U.S. national team camp that had a great MLS season with RSL, and you've got other young MLS players uh, succeeding on a world stage or being transferred. So sometimes it, it may just be somebody trying to kind of piggyback on the, the rumored transfer of you know, a young Dallas player for big money somewhere. So um, it's always hard to evaluate even, you know, it doesn't matter if you're external or internal, like the way rumors and names and financial figures and all that kind of flies across social media these days, it's it's hard to even say, hey, where there's smoke, there's, there's fire. Mm-hmm. It's you wait for something substantiated and you usually I mean a couple years ago I think we would wait for something like that to be substantiated by a big outlet right like um, in Italy it's uh, Correo della Sport it's like a big sports only mostly soccer newspaper that is printed daily like they are legitimate but you know New York Times used to be uh, beyond reproach and the way their Twitter and their internal politics and their podcasts, like there's controversy around everything 
the New York Times tweets and does and how they change headlines and stuff. So I think that carries through everywhere else. I mean, I don't know. There's part of me that would sit here today and say, okay, Washington Post to me is the most reliable, but they're owned by Jeff Bezos. So <laughs> I'm not a big Amazon guy. I mean, I am in times of need, I guess. So I, I don't know. Like you can debate whether those two things are even connected or not, but that's just – that's part of the debate that happens in everything. And, and we talk a little bit about these big journalism issues uh, coming up here with Sam Stasekel. But before we get to Sam, uh, we do have a pretty cool voice memo left to us from Brock talking about his favorite RSL memory. And I'd like to reiterate that if you want to share yours and be part of future shows, please click the message function over at anchor.fm slash claret and cobalt or you can email a voice memo from your phone to us at rsltrey rsltrey at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you and these kinds of uh, listener participation can give us some great ideas going forward and we want to hear from you guys we want to hear your guest ideas we want to hear your feedback Positive and negative, we want to hear your constructive criticism. But before that, let's hear from Brock and his favorite RSL memory. Hi, my name is Brock. I just wanted to share my favorite memory. Definitely have to be the 2009 MLS Cup win. I was sitting on a train in Germany uh, for my two-year LDS mission, and I saw in the newspaper uh, David Beckham's LA Galaxy lost MLS Cup to Real Salt Lake. And there's really when my love for this sport and team began. Um, I got home that next year, and I somehow managed to get tickets from my brother through a friend of his uh, to the CONCACAF Champions League match there. Um, I was blown away. And ever since then, I've been a diehard fan, uh, and I love this club. That's awesome. Thanks, Brock. Appreciate you sharing that. Ryan, I don't know where your mind goes when you hear Brock describe uh, everything there. It's pretty cool, right? Like, we've talked about the role that uh, past, current, and future missionaries could play in this club. A lot of people I've heard over my 15 years in Utah, people that fell in love with RSL because they came back from a soccer-loving mission or a mission to a soccer-loving country uh, completely having their eyes open to the sport in a way that it wasn't when they left here, left wherever. Um, so that's pretty cool. He's in Germany. Obviously, David Beckham um, was a massive upset. Um, you had the shootout. Uh, but hearing him reference the CONCACAF game the following year, and I don't know if this is the one Brock was at, but our first CONCACAF game was a game against uh, the team from Panama, and I'm I'm sorry, I'm just blanking on their name right now, but they flopped all over the place. We had about 9,500 fans in the stands, if I recall correctly. It was a it was a Wednesday night, uh, you know, midweek game, and it was our first game in this tournament. That who knew we were going to go on the run we did, but uh, I remember our social media team put together a video set to the Benny Hill music of the um, of the stretcher crew going out so frequently and so often that there was 
think nine minutes of stoppage time added okay. to the end of the game because of all the time wasting. And uh, oh my gosh, I gotta look up the name of this team really quick. It's just killing me right now. Um, that just reminds me of the idea like um, when you live in Salt Lake and you're trying to get people to come to an RSL game, you definitely run up against the 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 former missionaries that are that their soccer snobbery can I say that um, sure comes from the fact that they were in uh, you know some city in Brazil or yeah. you know Spain or something. And so trying to, like, you know, explain that soccer, you know, soccer in the United States does have a thing. that There's 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 differences, definitely. Sure. But when you're trying to explain it to someone whose entire um, connection to that is what they saw in those two years when they were the, on their mission. Right. Sometimes that's even harder than the people that, like, uh, you know, when you have a friend who's moved here from <laughs> England. But, it's, uh, but I do have to find, like, when we get those guys on board, those guys are usually pretty diehard. So. Sure. It is, uh, but that's one of the challenges of uh, you know spreading the the RSL MLS word is that you run up against those guys. But so, like on this night in question at Rio Tinto Stadium is Arabe Unido. We didn't know anything about Arabe Unido, and we ended up uh, handling them very well. I think when we went down there and you know in the group stage. But sorry, I had to like Google that. I don't know why I was having such a mental block, but I remember sitting in the stands for part of that game with my niece. I remember thinking it was crazy, um, and I think Paul Ward was actually the name of the referee. He was a Canadian referee, and we had seen him in certain MLS competitions, but I remember, I think even he was shocked at the amount of stoppage time uh, that he had to add because of all the time wasting from the, the diving, the flopping, the faking of the injuries, and it ended up being one of those things uh, that, that we'll never forget from our our CONCACAF group stage, which also included signature moments that we'll get into in the future uh, of the games against Cruz Azul, the games against Toronto FC, and uh, RSL becoming, uh, you know, winning that group with a 4-1-1 one one record, a plus-six goal differential. Was and, the uh, was the game against Saprissa, wasn't that in the captain RSL play against them? We did, That was yeah. before, before yep. um, Wasaba was kind of, like, discovered, quote-unquote? Correct. Um, yeah, that's the, on the same note of this. Like, I did have a friend, you know, who was keyed into Saprissa playing against uh, RSL because he'd spent time in sure. Costa Rica, and that was the team in the town that he was in. And I was like, "That's so bizarre that he's he knows this this team I've never heard of before." Yeah. And he was he was keyed in, but that was actually kind of the that was the I think I'm pretty sure that's the first time that Sabo kind of came into the orbit of yeah so world. Sabo was on the team on our team but Saprisa was the club he had kind of okay so they, weren't, they okay. weren't his hometown club but they were the club that he achieved prominence with okay before he went to Europe so I think Saprisa he scored a ton of goals from them they were they were you know kind of the national champion of Costa Rica them and Alawela I believe were really the powers in the in the early 2000s and then Sabo went over to Switzerland and then to England before he came to Salt Lake. So when when we played them in the semifinal, and it was actually Hamas and Alave that scored the critical road goal at Saprissa that that put us into the final against Monterey. But you know this was Sabo's home. Uh, people there still loved him because he just scored so many goals. But I remember um, you know that stadium, and they played on turf steep stands they called it the the monster's cave um their mascot was known as kind of the purple purple monster it was kind of a dragon looking thing 
And um, and I remember just getting pelted with coins in like pregame warmups. I remember uh, you know Bill Riley and and Dunny in their radio booth way up at the top of the stadium. Um, people giving Bill Riley the throat slash gesture because you know they were going to take us down. Um, I do remember Dunny getting into a massive argument with Simon Borg from MLS Soccer um, on the field at practice the day before that Saprisa game. Um, I think, and next time we have Dunny on, we'll ask him about it. But it was it was arguing about somebody. I think Luis Gill's best position. I think it was Luis Gill. So it was one of our young players. Anyway, a lot of. Great RSL memories at Saprissa and um, a lot of great RSL memories everywhere you look. So please uh, go to anchor.fm slash Claret and Cobalt, press the message function and uh, share that with us or shoot us a, a voice memo via email at rsltray at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from everybody. And uh, speaking of RSL memories, so many that I can't share, a few that I can Coming up next as we talk to former RSL staffer and current athletic national soccer writer, Sam Stayskull. We talk uh, a lot about the spirit of the club, his conversations, how RSL is perceived nationally, et cetera, et cetera. And Sam, somebody I'm sure we'll have on uh, from time to time to get his take on many national topics related to MLS, but also bigger picture, maybe sports business, journalism, uh, other types of things that I that I often hear Sam, his colleagues, Chris Camrani, etc., um, talk about. So, without any further ado, let's get out to Sam Stacey. All right, Trey Fitzgerald, Ryan Hale here on Bleeding Claret and Cobalt. Please to welcome. A man that uh, many RSL fans know, either from his time at the club, his numerous radio appearances in the Salt Lake City market on ESPN 700, or his writing, his excellent writing and reporting covering Major League Soccer, the U.S. national team, and the state of the sport in this country, in this region, for The Athletic. We welcome the one, the only, Sam Stasekel. Sam, thanks for hanging out with us today. Trey, thank you for letting me grace your presence. Wow. <laughs> um, Sam, you know, this this podcast, as we've gotten it off the ground, is is meant to kind of take a 30,000-foot look at the past, present, future of Rail Salt Lake. And, you know, obviously there's there's things about the soul of this club we want to celebrate. And now are very interesting times as we turn the page from the Deloitte Hansen era into – RSL 4.0, whatever that looks like, but RSL 4.0 is that the official name? That's the uh, working title. <laughs> you okay. know, 1.0 Dave Solo, 2.0 Dave and Deloitte, 3.0 Deloitte, and 4.0 is a new era. And you know, Don Garber has said okay. that that sale should happen here in uh, 2021. Uh, no more specific timeline. He's come out at MLS Cup and said. You know the team would definitely stay here, so I think that that certainly made people feel a little better about future prospects following the departure of the Royals. But I guess from your standpoint now as a national writer covering this league, what what is that next owner of Real Salt Lake? What are they getting with you know the infrastructure of the academy and everything that that Deloitte built, the relevance that 
the club has been able to enjoy over its uh, 15 plus years uh, as a relatively big fish in a small pond. But obviously things have changed over on the jazz ownership side with Ryan Smith from Qualtrics taking over uh, mostly for the Millers, about an 80% interest. And I just, uh, I think the listeners here are curious as to how all this plays out from a national slash MLS standpoint for somebody like yourself? Sure. So I think on the one hand, they're getting a a club that's pretty, what's the HGTV word for this? Turnkey, right? Mm. Not not many major renovations or build-outs are required, at least on the sporting side, right? The infrastructure is all there. The facility in Harriman, the stadium, uh, a fan base that has supported the club um, through good times, um, through less good times. And I think you know, with a new owner, we'll probably be ready to support it again if the product on the field can be solid. Um, so I think in those ways, it's, and I haven't even mentioned the academy, but the academy too, um, and the high school and, and everything that goes along with it. In those ways, I think it's a really attractive team to buy. Everything is set up, right? You don't have to do a lot in terms of trying to build a fan base. You just have to kind of activate the one that's already shown that it's there. Um, so I think that's, that's really attractive. Um, but on the other hand, I, I think it seems to me from an outside perspective that there's a ton of work to be done in resetting the front office culture, uh, in building relationships with the corporate community in Utah, um, that, you know, outside of the Hansen owned or affiliated companies, um, and really kind of ramping this thing up in a way that you're not just taking the existing foundation and building upon it and doing a pretty good job, but you're taking those existing solid ingredients and and really ramping them up in a way that the team hasn't, you know, experienced or done before. Um, So I think there are a lot of good things in Salt Lake. Um, I also think there's a lot of work to be done. And then the other part, if you're talking about how attractive is this club to potential buyers, right, is the market size. Right. And you can be the big fish in the small pond and that's great. Don't get me wrong. Um, but there are some limitations that come with that, right? The sponsorship dollars might not be as readily available as they would be in a bigger city um, that has more, more high powered companies. I know the Silicon slopes is a thing out there, yeah. so I don't, I don't mean to, to be smirched at, but you know, the population, right that that means smaller population means you probably can't charge as much for tickets. So the ceiling is probably a little bit lower um, than it would be other places, but the floor is pretty high already. Um, So I think there's a decent amount of certainty in terms of what the club at least, you know, already is what it can be. And uh, there's still room for growth too. So um, I think it's an attractive team. Um, And then there's the possibility of getting back into NWSL too in a couple of years. Um, which I think, you know, depending on the owner, could be viewed as a major selling point. In a constantly changing world and one that, you know, has experienced, I think, a lot of acceleration of some of that change because of COVID over the last year plus, as we talk about how people connect and work has changed, technology, journalism, there's obviously a lot of ways uh, that we can take this conversation but you mentioned silicon slopes and and uh, utah seems to be going through some somewhat of a discovery from from people from texas california other places as a 
beautiful place to live, a, a low impact uh, way to to build a life. Do you think those kinds of things can benefit Real Salt Lake as we go into you know a new era, a decade that should see you know the World Cup here in five years? The academy, I think, has been well placed, well positioned uh, to maybe host uh, a national team or two as part of their training base for that for that World Cup. So I think there's a lot of reasons people are optimistic about the profile of the sport here in this uh, very unique uh, Salt Lake Valley. Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting things going on. And you pointed out some of them, you know, the Academy, the World Cup, all of that stuff. Um, that being said, I think, you know, while I agree with you that Salt Lake kind of is this diamond in the rough, uh, it's still very much in the rough, in my opinion, from a national perspective, mm-hmm. right? I lived out there for two years. And I didn't know anything about Utah before I moved there, like nothing. Um, I had no idea what I was walking into. Um, and I ended up loving it. I thought it was a really great place to live. Um, that being said, like I was willing to take a chance, right. When I yeah. moved out there and I don't think every potential MLS buyer or owner would be willing to take that same chance. Right. So that probably narrows the pool of people that you can sell this mm-hmm. team to. Um, you know, ideally everyone would give it a good look and try and understand. Right. Um, but some people it's not going to be to their taste, even if they do. Right. And not everyone's going to give it that chance. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think that's probably more of a hurdle to overcome than, than a selling point really. Okay. Um, I think that's unfortunate, but I think that's kind of the reality. You know, if you're selling a team in LA, for instance, right, you'll probably have no shortage of people trying to come out and buy it. Um, selling a team in Utah. Well, a lot of those people that would be willing to buy a team in LA, they might not be as willing. Um, and I think that's the reality that the clubs and the league are going to have to deal with here um, over the course of trying to sell sell the organization. As you mentioned, you took a risk. You didn't know what you were getting into uh, before your two years here with RSL. And and Sam, remind me, was that thirteen and fourteen, or was it twelve and thirteen? Uh, it was mid twelve and mid fourteen. Okay, so you know, so all yeah, that's right. Okay, so parts of those. But the the last game that I worked for the club was the first loss of 2014 in the Jeff Casario. That's right. So, you know, literally like all downhill. Seventh game, a road match in an afternoon at Seattle. 13th, 13th game. Oh, 13th. That's right. 2014. That's yeah. right. He went unbeaten yeah. in the first 12. Um, yeah. What is your favorite memory of those two years working uh, <laughs> intimately in the middle of the RSL? My favorite memory? Yeah. Oh my God. Uh, Trey, I, I mean, like, do you want me to like, do you want me to throw you under the bus here? Like what, what's safe for the podcast? Cause I could tell some stories. I've got, I've got, I've got <laughs> thick skin as do Garth, Jason, and anybody else that you may want to out. Um, on a serious note, let me give a serious one. I mean, it's not like any one moment, um, but just like the camaraderie that was within the organization uh, among the front office employees. You know, it was like, what's the phrase? Small but mighty. We didn't have a ton of people, but we thought we that we, we did pretty well um, for what we had. Uh, I think we certainly punched above our weight, and I think there was a good deal of pride in that. And everyone was pretty bought in, and everyone was working together. Um, and I thought that was really cool. You know, I think, I don't know if you remember this, the 2014 home opener, I think it was against the Galaxy. 
Um, and we did that card display before yep. the game um, in the whole stadium. And I mean, that moment, like, I don't know if you remember how this came together and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the way I remember it was me and one of the graphic designers, Ty Cummins. We had this idea. We went to the president of the club, Bill Manning, and we said, Hey, what do you think? Can we do this? This is like five days before the game. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, well, how much is it going to cost? And we were like, uh, probably should have thought of that before we came to you. And so we went, we like Ty went back and he figured out how much it would cost to get all these pieces of paper. And Bill was like, if you can do it cheaply, like, yeah, sure. Um, and you know, basically we couldn't hire any staff to help set up these cards. So, but we were able to get all the cards for a pretty decent price. And so we bought them and we put out a call in the office at first and then on social media to fans. So like come to the Rio Tinto stadium because it was a day game. It was an early start at like seven in the morning on a Saturday to help us tape all of these cards <laughs> into each, every single individual seat wow. in the stadium. Uh, so 20,000 or whatever it is. Um, just like that effort, like the way everyone coalesced around it, both employees and my coworkers and, and fans, because there were probably a hundred people there um, between, between employees and, and fans. Uh, the way that came together so fast and coalesced so quickly and how everyone supported, that was really cool. And I thought it was really emblematic of what that club was at the time. Um, and that was fun. And then there were a bunch of ridiculous moments too, um, <laughs> involving some, you know, phone calls with you and, you know, dog, the bounty hunter's son and all sorts of other things, but we don't need to get into yeah, that. Yeah. We anymore. can save those for uh, future <laughs> visits. <laughs> Sam, as you know, as I've kind of come back to Utah and, and talked to you and many others that have been in and around this club for a long time, I, th- I think there's a there's something special that uh, a certain je ne sais quoi, maybe that, uh, you know, <laughs> ex staff, ex players uh, have indicated that they would love to come back someday in the right situation to help. Um, recapture the glory days, whatever that means. And, you know, for certain people, it means on the field or on the soccer side. For other people, it means uh, connecting to the community in a post-COVID world um, and everything kind of in between. But uh, as a guy that was here and was an integral part of the operation during really the glory days, um, when, when, <laughs> I don't know how integral I was, but thank you. <laughs> um, you were, trust me. Um, everybody was, like you said, we all leaned on each other and it was, uh, it was a true, uh, esprit de corps, if you will, to use my second Man, you're just French analogy French. today. Yeah. Um, my goodness. <laughs> what, uh, what do you think it is about, um, what this club sort of ambitious, ambitiously has represented in the past that kind of got under into people's blood under people's skin that that they want to see this little engine that could or whatever the other things that we've kind of referred to ourselves over the years but what is that can you define that can you put your finger on it and and then how does that make this club maybe different than orlando or houston or maybe some of the other mls clubs that are apparently on the uh seller's block right now so To answer your first question, you know, I think it's pretty simple. And I don't think this is something unique to Salt Lake as much as you might not want want me to say that. (laughs) Um, I think it's just a symptom of an organization that was successful, right? And an organization that, you know, on a micro level 
like an individual employee level, took a lot of pride in that success, both in on the field and off the field in terms of where, you know, the team ranked at the time and season tickets and sponsorship money. You know, I don't know if people really understand. It was, what, like top three in most of those metrics yep. in the yep. league? Absolutely. And, and the league was at that time, I think, 18 teams, and it was the smallest market in the league. So everyone at the club took a lot of pride in that because, you know, the budget wasn't there, right? The, the number of staffers wasn't there, um, but we were still able to pull that off. And a lot of that was just because, you know, the fan base embraced it. It wasn't because we were geniuses or anything like that. But I think we all gave an honest effort and we all worked really hard. Um, and we all took a lot of pride in like kind of that whole team as a star mentality and all that stuff. And so when you have success, and particularly when you have success as an underdog, which is absolutely how I thought of, of the club and myself. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, it's definitely how you thought of things. <laughs> I think it's how most people of the organization thought of, thought of the situation, right? So when you have success, when you have success as an underdog, and then the organization falls on hard times later, right? The people that were there for the successful part of time, you know, they, they look back fondly and nostalgically and they say, man, like, remember when? Like the good old days, what if it could get back there, right? And so I think it's a pretty normal human response, sure. honestly. You know, I, before I moved to Utah, I covered the Chicago Fire um, for a variety of different outlets. And it's le- it was less so then because the, the Fire were still succeeding, but there was still a little bit of an undercurrent even then. Um, and there certainly is now. Of the Fire, they were one of these, you know, they were kind of the shining light of MLS for a long time in the late nineties and early two thousands and really successful. Uh, and then they fell on some hard times and you see former players, former staffers, everyone's got an opinion even today. Right. Like my colleague at the athletic Felipe, Felipe Cardenas, he did a story not that long ago with Christos Stoichkov who played for those original fire teams. Mm-hmm. He was a Ballon d'Or winner with Barcelona, a legend of the game. And most of the interview was about the fire where he played for like two seasons and like what he would do to correct them. Right. So it's the same sort of dynamic of play there where it's people who took a lot of pride in helping an organization be successful. Um, Still looking back at that organization fondly and their time at that organization fondly. And then when it falls on hard times, they're like, man, we had such a special thing there. What happened? Let's go fix it. Right. So I think it's, I think it's just as simple as people really loved being a part of it. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, you know, when you love being a part of something, you, you try and chase it and you want to go back and you want to make it great. Uh, so I think that's kind of what's going on there. If that makes sense. And then I, I don't even remember your second question. The second Orlando, part Houston. Yeah. Just kind of compare and contrast maybe the, yeah. the opportunity here and, and, you know, obviously each of these markets, has its pros and cons, but uh, how do you think? And, and I understand that there's a massive caveat of the the COVID times that we're in, and maybe the uncertainty for how much longer those those times last and impact the business, not just for the three teams that are on sale, but everybody, including you know the players' union and, and the league, are engaged in conversations right now that are that are purely COVID driven. Yeah. So in terms of the differences between RSL and those two other teams, both of which are also up for sale, um, you know, I mentioned this in the first answer. RSL is a little more ready-made, I would say, than both of those clubs. Orlando might have a little bit of an argument there because they've 
you know, despite historically poor results on the field, right? This was really their first first and only good yeah. year um, of results in MLS in 2020. Um, they've had really good support there, right? Um, sure. And they have a stadium and they just built a facility. So, you know, they're, they're in a pretty decent spot too. Um, and again, it's a little bit of a smaller market, so not quite the same ceiling. I think Houston is way different. Um, they have a stadium, right? But that team has really underperformed. The owner puts less into the roster than what Hanson put into RSL, um, financially speaking. And that's, I think, the fourth biggest city in the country um, with a ton of money there, right? And yeah. you would think, given the demographics and the heavy, heavily Hispanic population, you would think a, a community that's really ready to embrace soccer. They have a downtown stadium. And really, since they opened the downtown stadium in 2012, and the team's gotten a little bit worse on the field, mm. uh, their support has gotten worse than when they were playing at the University of Houston's old college football stadium. So that one's puzzling, but the ceiling there, I think, is a lot greater than what it is in Salt Lake, certainly in Orlando as well. Um, so that's a little bit of a different opportunity. Uh, that being said, it's also more of a gamble because it's not as ready-made. The support hasn't been there. Um, and so it's, you know, you're going to have to do a lot more work to kind of get that thing up and running than you would in Salt Lake and than you would in Orlando, where the fan bases kind of already exist. And as long as you're putting a decent product on the field, um, you're going to get some good support. During your your time since you left here, Sam, obviously uh, people knew you from uh, covering MLS for MLSsoccer.com uh, prior to moving on to The Athletic a couple years ago. When you run into or have conversations in your uh, daily course of work pursuing uh, the finest sports journalism anywhere for The Athletic, and I strongly believe that that you guys do things uh the way it's meant to be done and it's in increasingly uh, unique gee, thanks Trey. um we can get into to why uh you guys stand as a beacon of hope amongst uh, other uh, outlets who wow. refuse to do you have a french, adhere. You have a french phrase for this <laughs> i do not but anyway that's a that's a roundabout way of me getting to when you talk to bill manning or jason christ or garth lagerway who are obviously uh extremely prominent uh, figures in this club's history and during the most successful times, uh, when you s- speak to them or see them in their uh, newer or current roles with the organizations in Seattle, Toronto, and, and Jason, obviously, NYCFC, uh, then Orlando, now uh, Miami, and U.S. Soccer, um, I imagine there's at least a little bit of Salt Lake-specific banter before you guys get on to the business of hand. Yeah, of course, you know, um, <laughs> probably more so with whenever I bump into Bill or Garth than yeah. Jason, just because I, I was, I, I had a closer <laughs> working relationship with those two than I did with Jason in Utah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's just like bumping into an old friend, right? Yeah. You, you haven't seen for a long time. You reminisce about old times and the laughs that you had and the things you did and, um, the ridiculous things that you were a part of or you saw, um, so there's, you know, there's that team spirit that still exists. Um, yeah. And it's nice to always, like, you know, walk down memory lane a little and have a laugh or two when you see those people. Um, I won't ask you to give up any, any of their uh, state secrets that the, the, I know they they hold so closely <laughs> to their vest. You know, you know more of them than I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll save those for uh, future pods, apparently. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
what, uh, I guess here's an open-ended question for you. And, you know, this is a great conversation. We really appreciate you joining us, but, um, is there, uh, I guess certain idiosyncrasies that you have to discuss with, whether it's Paul Tenorio or, or your colleague, um, Chris Camrani specific to how you've had to cover RSL related issues during your time at the athletic, not just the ownerships, uh, transition stuff, but, uh, you know, some of the other topics that have come up over the last couple of years. Yeah, definitely. Um, so it's, I mean, it's always tricky, right? Because like I have full faith in my ability to cover things fairly. Right. Yeah. But like the whole notion, and this is just like a journalism wide notion that extends beyond sports into politics, into fashion, into music, into whatever, right. Anytime a writer is writing about any subject to say that they're unobjective or to say that they're completely objective and mm. totally unbiased, it's not true. Right. Yeah. We're all human beings just like anyone else. We have our own opinions about things. Right. So the issue for me, right. Is like not to say that I'm biased or unbiased about RSL because like, I'll be honest, like the club, like it was my first job out of college, you know, like Trey, you gave me that job. You took a chance. You allowed me to stay in soccer. I'm sorry. Right. And I have some great memories of working there and being there and meeting people uh, inside and outside the club. Um, that I will carry with me forever. So to say that I'm unbiased would not be true. And But to say that I, I cannot cover the team fairly would also not be true. I can cover the team fairly, right? And that involves, like, my journalism and the process of it, yeah. right? And making sure that everything I have is, is buttoned down and making sure I'm talking to different people and I'm not just getting one perspective and one person's agenda and I'm getting both sides of the story and then telling the true one, right? Yeah. Um, and I have faith in my ability to do that. Um, but that being said, like optics come into it sometimes, right? Like if there's just like a regular RSL story, you know, say Demir Krylock is tearing it up and scoring a ton of goals. Yeah. Like, do I need to write that story? Or can Chris take it, right? Sure. Like, yeah, Chris can take it, right? And he can do a great job. And like, there's no reason for me to sort of like open myself up to kind of potential criticism because I've never really gotten any of this, but I'm just cautious with it. But potential criticism of, oh, Sam, you know, you're giving this love to RSL or RSL players because you're, you know, you used to work for the team and you're biased, right? Um, and so I, I try not to open myself up to that when I, when I don't need to. Uh, there are some stories that rise above, right? And that I feel worth covering regardless. Um, and all of those stories I stand by. Uh, and I think I reported fairly and accurately. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think it's interesting though, like just the notion that media is unbiased or completely objective. Like it's just not true. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's not. And if it is true, then then there's a problem there, right? Because that journalist in question is a robot who who it's, it's either a robot that's totally unfeeling and like, it's like no one's like that, but you know, maybe there's one person out there yeah. <laughs> that doesn't experience human emotion like the rest of us, or they're totally ignorant on the subject and don't know what they're talking about. And they don't have any interest in learning about it more. And to me, that would be even a bigger issue, but 
Um, yeah. I mean, I think you can be like, everyone can be, everyone's a little biased about everything. Um, it's just making sure that you stay true to your process and good process and you report fairly and accurately. Um, and that's what I try to do, not just with my work about how to sell, but about everything. Regarding that process, how, how much more difficult or easy is it to, um, be a sports journalist in COVID times when, you know, you're primarily restricted to phone, Zoom, and a, a, probably a more structured media access protocol than, than you may have enjoyed when you could go to the stadium every Wednesday, Saturday. Um, the I guess the story that really screams into my mind regarding you is you spent a lot of time with Bruce Arena in a New England Revolution uh, environment. <laughs> uh, I, it might have been right before COVID, but it, it seems like it was a little over a year ago, and it was just, you know – that intimacy that you and Bruce had over the course of, I don't know how long, a couple of days might've been a week of reporting for that story, but how different are things now and, and how, how optimistic I guess are you or how necessary is it to go back to normal or, you know, I've seen Chris Camrani and other, you know, NBA writers talk a lot about, you know, this topic in terms of, you know, what, what the future holds, not just in six months, but in, in two years in terms of uh, how journalists and athletes and organizations like leagues and teams uh, interact. Yeah. So on the one hand, my job hasn't changed that much. I started down this reporting path or resumed this reporting path um, about MLS when I lived in Durham, North Carolina. So um, everyone listening to this podcast, I'm assuming, will know that there are no MLS teams close to Durham, North Carolina. The closest one was DC United, which I think is four and a half hours away. So I was doing all my business over the phone for years. Uh, Then I moved to Chicago, did most of my business over the phone because I'm covering the league from a national standpoint. Um, And then, you know, do the odd story about the fire here and there in person. Um, Then I moved to Boston, same sort of deal. Uh, it was a cool experience being there. You mentioned Bruce, like, and just being around that team last year, yeah, or I guess 2019, because it was an insane year. Uh, Friedel was there. Oh, it was right. super dramatic and terrible. Mike Burns was there. He fired Friedel and did a press conference on a Friday, and he was leading the coaching search. And by that Monday, Arena was hired as coach and GM, and Burns had been fired. And then, you know, they go from this awful, terrible, miserable team to a team that doesn't lose a game for three months. Um, And so that was just like a cool, exciting story to be around. And, you know, I was able to be there and develop some relationships with some of the people on that team and on that staff. And so that was cool, right? Like I was able to continue that coverage a little bit in 2020 with the playoff run that they had, uh, making it all the way to the Eastern Conference Final and do some cool stories there. But Yeah, uh, most of my job has been conducted from my work-from-home office uh, for the last six-plus years. So it's not that different for me, but those instances, like I just described with the revolution, you know, of being able to go and really cover a team in person and develop relationships, cool relationships with with players, with coaches, with staffers, etc., um, that doesn't exist anymore. Right. right. So like I was hoping to do that this year, I just moved to New York before the pandemic started with the Red Bulls and with New York city FC. And that was largely impossible. Um, so yeah, it's tougher. Um, 
it's tougher, especially if you're like on a one team beat, mm-hmm. right. Where you're going out to training every single day. Uh, that, you know, is almost impossible now. Well, Zoom. Um, but I'm lucky enough that I get to cover lucky or unlucky, uh, that I get to cover what 27 teams this year, plus a few more coming in. Right. Um, so there's never, <laughs> yeah. there's never a shortage of stories for me to go after. So I don't have to worry as much about that, but yeah, it would be nice to go back in person. I'm curious to see what it looks like whenever, you know, this subsides. I think this year will still be pretty different in terms of availability. I don't really anticipate much in-person stuff. Um, certainly not for months. Um, so we'll see. I mean, it always helps to get some face time to help build relationships. So that's not rocket science. Real quick, before we let you go, uh, you've been, uh, kind of on the leading edge of the MLS slash, uh, MLSPA force majeure labor negotiations. Uh, it looks like the league is taking a, yet another little maybe leap of faith, I'd say, and announcing a, start date for the season and a report date um, from your standpoint or experience, Sam, was there ever any doubt that this would get done? And I guess there still is a little bit of doubt because it's, yeah. it's all pending. <laughs> it's yet. all pending. So I guess my real, my real question for you then is uh, are you surprised or have you guys been surprised over the last, I don't know, six, eight weeks at maybe the, the more public nature of the back and forth uh, compared to what we've maybe seen in the past from the league and the union. Yeah. I've been a little bit surprised by that. Um, you know, just because like you said, we haven't seen it in the past, but you know, if I'm taking a step back, maybe I shouldn't have been surprised by that. Right. Since the last time we had a full out CBA negotiation, like a proper one, like last winter, not yeah. the one before MLS is back in the spring. Um, that one was tight lipped, but since then, there's been so much bad blood generated that really the players feel towards the league. Right. So when bad blood comes out, then people are more willing to air their dirty laundry in public. Mm. Right. So, so maybe, and and the union kind of started that, um, before MLS cup, right. They had a press conference and they were saying like invoking force majeure would be a huge mistake. They better not do this, et cetera, et cetera. And then the league did it. Um, and they came out and did some stuff in public and commissioner Don Garber had a press conference, uh, and then he sent an open letter and then Bob Foose, the MLSPA executive director, he had a press conference after Garber's press conference and they're just going back and forth a little bit here. Um, but it's, I think it's all like tit for tat, you know, it's like one side feels like the other side said something and they have to go out there and defend it. Right. So once you get into that cycle, it's hard to stop. Is it a, um, we'll is, it a it is it a sign of maturity for the league that this is kind of where it's going? <laughs> uh, Not for the league, I, I mean for the sport. Like, I mean, I no, feel like I, 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 I grew up, I grew saying. up my like, whole league, life league is watching yeah, this in an like NFL the, standpoint, right? So. Yeah, and we've seen it how many times in baseball and hockey, right, and basketball even as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's good that there's media coverage of it, right, and that there's interest in it. Um, it's, it's, I just kind of laugh because like, it's a very, at its core, it's an immature thing that these, these people are doing, right? <laughs> They're like being like, no, you're wrong. I'm right. <laughs> you're wrong. I'm right. So like, it's just a funny way to frame it. Is it a sign of maturity? Uh, I, yeah. I mean, in some ways, yes. Um, you know, it, I'm lucky that I have a job that, uh, dictates that, you know, I am digging for this information and sort of facilitating that back and forth. So I'm certainly not going to complain about it. 
Um, and it, I think, you know, it's, I, I see my metrics on my articles and this sort of, this sort of coverage always does pretty well. So people, uh, yeah. people seem to be interested in it. So yeah, I think, I think that's good. And I think kind of the more coverage we can get about MLS and the more topics, um, we can cover. So like salary cap, uh, you know, more data on that side of things, uh, the better. And I think people are interested in it. So hopefully it keeps opening it up and, uh, you know, we'll see where it goes. And just to wrap it up, we'll ask you the question we've been asking uh, everybody is kind of what are your hopes, um, expectations, dreams for the 2021 MLS season? World peace, puppies for everyone. (laughs) Uh, No. Uh, (laughs) um, My hopes and dreams. Uh, Well, I hope that they they come to an agreement on a CBA um, that both parties are at least not furious with um i hope they come to a deal that's fair i hope they're able to do that in a time frame that allows mls to start the season on april 2nd or 3rd or whatever they're announcing um and i hope that more than anything i hope that we get through it without um significant covid infections or interruptions and i hope that by the end of the year you know we can all be kind of celebrating a season together in person in front of a full stadium. Um, how's that sound? Uh, return to normalcy is welcome for everybody, and uh, maybe there'll be an opportunity for us in the future, Sam, to get into the minutiae of, of CBA and COVID preparations. I still want to always pick your brain on the, the state of journalism in our in our country, in our world, but we'll save those <laughs> discussions for a future date, and we'll just uh, leave you by saying uh, thank you. Great to hear your voice, and... Appreciate your time as always, Sammy. I appreciate you, Trey. And I want to pick your brain about Wes Chapman. But like you said, another time. That will, We'll save that for a roundtable <laughs> uh, so we can have uh, we'll 18 different versions. Yeah. <laughs> Just, I'm just gonna uh, I'm just gonna preemptively discredit Elliot's version of that story, okay? <laughs> okay. Fair enough. All right, We're gonna Sam. edit all this out. Yes. <laughs> See you, Trey. Have a good day. <laughs> Bye. All right, that's our show. Thanks everybody for listening. Some good stuff there from Sam. A little uh, a little bit of a different. Uh, path I think than we've taken with uh, Zarcos, Jake, Tony Beltran and Brian Dunseth, but we're trying to be full service here and and round out a lot of different angles on a lot of different topics celebrating the past, present and future of Real Salt Lake. If you want to connect with us always, please find us on Twitter or Instagram at Claret Cobalt always up for banter, omissions, corrections, guest suggestions rsl memories as we talked about earlier thank you again brock this show produced independently by trey fitzgerald and mountaineer media recorded at mountaineer studios in draper utah the views expressed on this show are our own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions or positions of real salt lake thank you as always for listening download rate listen subscribe share Bleeding Claret and Cobalt wherever you get your podcasts, and we will talk to you soon.